Menasha, November 9th, 1941. Parishioners at St. Mary's Catholic Church line up to receive the Eucharist during the early Sunday morning service. Father Theopolis Riesinger from nearby St. Joseph's Parish in Appleton is assisting with the sacrament. It would end up being his last act on earth. Collapsing on the altar, the 73-year-old passes away that morning, a beloved priest in the Fox Valley for 30 years. Forgotten with time and passing generations, a movie is released in 1973 based on Riesinger's works. Shocking the world with its depictions of evil, the movie sheds light on just who the old priest was. Father Theophilus Riesinger, The Exorcist. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode 35 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host. <laughs> That's Mickey the tone I'm used Sanders, to. That's what I'm used guy to. Over here. How you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm good. Even with your monotone, oministic, is that a word? I'm making Oministic. Ominous is the word, isn't it? Yeah. It's Well, it kind of fits. These are the these mm. are the dog days for me. These are the long days, right? Yeah, winter's dead great. smack of winter. The holidays are over. New Year's is over. Sports are kind of... Packer season's over. Yeah. yeah they gave us a little run there. That was nice. They did. But, they gave us some things we didn't expect. But now the days just kind of start biting a little bit. Although, I mean, this it's been really mild. I mean, it's this, been, this be, there, been was a, there was a cold winter. snap, but it's gotten better. Yeah. And, but my, my son starts baseball next week already, which is cool. So that gets me a little excited. Oh, but he wants really? to go outside. Yeah, they start in, so inside. In, I was going to say, it's still January. One-on-one instruction. February, yeah. So he wants to go outside, and he's like, Dad, let's go outside and pitch. I'm like, dude, the... Our backyard is like standing mud puddles. Frozen, you know? so, tundra. Know wanna, and, yeah. It's all covered with dirty snow and mud. So, But he gets to go inside, and they start one-on-one instruction pretty soon next week. So That's cool that he's so gung-ho he'd go play in the crap, though. Oh, he yeah. He'd be driving snowstorm. He'd be out there throwing it in a net. If he I really does love there. sports, he and your other it. boys are not so much. Not so much. They, they, they're more building things and, and uh, Star Wars stuff. So, man, completely different personality. That's so cool. That, yeah. I mean, and that's the gamut, though. Every one of those things I love, and you got three boys that are specializing in all three. Yeah, you know? no, it's great. It's it's they're all kind of little versions of me when I was growing up. You know, but they're still good kids. 
Oh, they're wonderful. Well, yeah. they're still I mean, nice they have people. they have they have their moments, but they're versions oh, they're, of you, but they're still good. I yeah. mean, we're we're still. not all the same. I mean, we're not. There are some differences there, right? But we are. We're actually getting into the the, the time of year we start scheduling things soon, and we will have some. I'll have some dates coming up with book signings that I'll be doing. Um, coming up this year, that Mickey, season starts yeah, again. Mickey and I will be having some appearances as well coming up later this year. So stay tuned uh, to further episodes for that when we start getting some dates locked down. The name of that book is Finding Dairyland. For you. Well, there's two of them. There's Finding Dairyland and there's You're still Lost Fox. Promo never stops, man. I guess for, it, for both it, of it them. Keeps, it and keeps just going. because I didn't get to mention it when I finally did it, I finally finished Finding Dairyland. Oh, excellent, man. What and it really was a good, it really is a good book. It, it, it took me... You're not just saying that because I'm sitting literally three no, feet from we you. We just proved that I would probably <laughs> rip on you before I compliment right, you. Right. It, it's it's well written. It's really good. And by the end, I actually found myself coming to tears because it's it's kind of, it, it, it tugs at your heartstrings, but it's kind of a sad story. It's called Finding Dairyland. It's about... It's a little fact, poignant. A little right, poignant. The yeah, fact yeah. that, you know, the Dairyland state is kind of dying off to corporate America, but it really gets to you by the end. And, and the stories, especially the, the, the second two-thirds of the book, it really elaborates on, as your books do, they, they elaborate on the people. You're focusing on the people that are being affected, and it, it, you do a good job. And the history is a big, strong element too. You, the facts are true, and they're there, and you, you learn a lot. So yeah. it's about stories. It's about right. the stories that go into the history, right? Because that's kind of what our history is. It's a, it's a, it's a stacked stories, personal stories of people, and that's what we try to do here. You know, that's what yeah. we we try to do. We hit on the personal level of, of kind of weird. Um, things that go on in the history of our state. So, You're almost good at this crap. I appreciate. Uh, you know, I, I, did say I couldn't almost. do it without you, man. Well, if, uh, I mean, that, duh. duh. Yeah, I am the glue. <laughs> Robert said that. Well, Robert knows what he's Mr. talking Fairman about. He's a very that, smart yeah. man. Yes, so, he, he really does. We will be coming up with dates soon as we start locking those in. But again, stay tuned to our social media for that: Twitter, X, whatever they want to call it, Facebook, <laughs> and we have those dates um, for you. Speaking of Facebook. There's a couple things I want to talk about. On, on our Facebook page a couple, not that long ago, about a week ago, I put on there a story about Morgan Geyser, who was one of the defendants in the Slenderman case. A few episodes ago. Which we covered in episode 32, I believe it was, um, about obviously the Slenderman stabbing in Waukesha County. And she's one of the defendants. She's still um, at a mental health facility here in Wisconsin at Winnebago. And she has petitioned for her release. Now, when you are found NGI in Wisconsin not guilty by reason of insanity, you have a right to petition for your release. Every not CGI, then, NGI. And, right, not All computer right. graphics, Got but it. not guilty by reason of insanity. Right, a little different. <laughs> so now she has petitioned. Now her last petition, she actually withdrew. So, and we don't actually know why, but, you That's know. telling, though, right so there, isn't it? So the judge has set a date for April of when that will be decided for her. This from Fox 6 in Milwaukee. It says, Morgan Geyser, one of the two convicted in the 2014 Slenderman stabbing of a classmate, has again filed a petition for her conditional release from a state mental health facility. In 2018, Geyser was committed to the Wisconsin Department of Health Services for 40 years, found guilty of attempted first-degree intentional homicide, but not guilty due to mental disease or defect. Court records show Geyser, who's now 21, withdrew previous petitions for early release from her commitment in 2023 and 2022. God, she's only 21. She's only 21, right? Quote, she's asking the judge to allow her to be released into the community under very strict conditions. 
said defense attorney Jonathan Lavoie, who was not associated with the case but has followed it for the past decade. So Anissa Wire, who was committed in 2017 for the attack, was granted conditional release in September of 2021. She was required to receive outpatient psychiatric treatment and subjected to GPS monitoring. The latter condition waived in, 20, in September 2023. Lavoie said that that can help Geyser's case as well. Geyser and Wire were charged in the stabbing of a classmate when they were all minors. Prosecutors said Peyton Leitner was lured to a wooded area in Waukesha by Geyser and Wire after a sleepover in May 2014. Geyser stabbed Leitner repeatedly as Wire urged her on. They claimed it was to appease Slenderman, a fictional horror character. A judge will have 30 days to appoint doctors to evaluate Geyser. Then they will be back in court. So there, I believe there's a panel of three doctors now that are going to assess Morgan and obviously give the judge their recommendations of whether she can, you know, be released back into the community. The judge doesn't necessarily have to follow their recommendations, however. You know, this is pretty much the judge's call. And this is the same judge, Michael Bourne, who has dealt with this case since the onset. He was the judge in the preliminary hearings. He was the judge during uh, the trial. He's been the judge that has done everything with these two girls. He's also the judge that did release Anissa Wire. So, As far as Wire, too, I'm looking back at the notes from our episode 32. And she was even considering continuing education in hopes of one day working with at-risk teens. That's why she was allowed to be released because she understood it better than Geyser has at this point. So, and, and we'll see, you know, we'll see. It, obviously, she's not just being released back into the community, you know, with no oversight. Obviously, there's a, there's going to be strict oversight. But, the, you know, there's a lot of questions into what what is that going to be? You know, there there's Probably some understanding of what she did. Probably some rehabilitation going on there. Her mental health is likely much more stable. Now, it was. obviously, what I think she was more stable or less stable to begin with. than Wire Well, sure, sure she with, was. And now we covered. what does this conditional release look like? You know, she's going is she going to be released back home? Is she going to go to a transitional living facility? And if she's released back home, you know, she's likely going to be on a med order. Is she going to have social workers following her? You know, outpatient treatment of mental health is kind of, is my background. You know, yeah. I've been in it for 20 to you over two decades, idea, so yeah. I understand what goes into this. And there's always a risk of that treatment not being followed. It, you have to, there's got to be. you got to re, got to rely on loved ones as much as anything. Well, point, right? maybe, you know, and, and is, I, you know, so I just, that's why I wonder what happened when she withdrew her last petition. That's, that's like, what I said. That why was is telling. that going on? That was telling. So it's either... Why would you do that? So is she being recommended by somebody to do that, saying you have no chance, pull this so we don't have to do the assessments? Or is there questions about where she's going to go? Can she go back home with her family? Is she going to go to a transitional living facility? And if she's it, if she is and she's there with other people, where is the, the, the guarantee of their safety knowing what she has done in the past? You know well, what the I mean? fact so. that she was going to do it and pulled it, that's a, it seems like a red flag to me. Either something happened or... Or somebody stepped forward and said, she's not ready. What are you doing? It's something along those lines. Well, maybe she knew she wasn't ready. Oh, yeah. Maybe it was even her going, no, Maybe she made that decision. You guys are telling me I should do this, but I'm not. And if she is the one who stepped forward, then good for her because that means There's some insight there, yeah. Right. She's on the verge of being ready at some point then if she was even accountable enough and self-aware enough to to recognize that if it was her. But like you said, we don't know. I would predict here, and and this is, I, I say this not knowing the reasons for why she made the withdrawals of her leather ones. Uh, I would predict that she does get conditional release this time. But again, if if it was issues with her 
um, not being psychiatrically stable last time. That's, that's why she pulled it, then I don't believe she will. But if it was kind of coordinating reasons, where is she going to go? Where is the help going to come from? What exactly is the condition of release? Ready. I would assume that that's been ironed out by now. Right. I think if she's psychiatrically ready, and these three doctors will attest to that, if she's psychiatrically ready, I believe she will be out. Yeah. Sure. And again, she's 21 years old. She's that's, still not you know, that old. It didn't happen that long ago. Right. Next story I want to cover here. This this actually came out a, a couple of weeks ago around the holidays, which I thought was interesting. It says former pimp claims to be serial killer, telling investigators he committed crimes in Madison and Milwaukee. The notorious prostitution strips along National and Greenfield Avenues in Milwaukee are the backdrop of a troubling confession, WISN reports. Lawrence McFarland, 40, of Milwaukee, telling investigators last month he, quote, frequently hears voices that tell him to either kill himself or kill others, unquote. The statements are contained in a criminal complaint filed this week charging him with sexual assault, false imprisonment, and strangulation. But if he is to believe, that's only the tip of the iceberg. McFarland claims he, quote, used to be a pimp trafficking prostitutes and, quote, has torched at least three women after strangling them using either, quote, gasoline or lighter fluid to burn the bodies. Huggy Bear never did something like that. He told police he, quote, couldn't remember the exact number of women he strangled to death and, quote, admitted to killing around seven more women with fatal injections of drugs. Were these his clients he was doing it to? We don't. They're prostitutes. So, yeah. So, I guess. Probably, oh, I don't know if they would be his, but they would be. Maybe even, like, competing prostitutes that he just didn't want to be around right. taking her business from away from his girls very walter ellis yeah esque except right? he's their boss essentially if so he's the pimp i mean walter God. ellis we covered i believe way back in episode four yeah, who was, was a serial killer in milwaukee known as the north side strangler but this guy is the pimp he's, I mean, he's a the he's one, a pimp right, right but well but i mean he's the one in charge of hooking him out and he's either killing his own or he's killing competitors that's crazy. Hey, like I said, Huggy Bear didn't do this stuff on Starsky and Hutch. So it says Thomas Fisher, the owner of Thomas Fisher Investigations, claims like those McFarland is making have to be checked out. He said investigators will likely now try to see if they can verify any of McFarland's claims. So this guy, obviously a pimp in Milwaukee, is claiming to have killed uh, a number, it looks like, of women. It's weird in that he's making these the claims. The Milwaukee and Madison I mean, area. He didn't need to. Why is he doing it? Yeah, well, he was... he was. The guilty conscience doesn't come up after killing seven people. That, that That's not how human beings work. So that's just something who had, had to have coerced him into doing that. This is a weird story. We so don't know a lot. So McFarland is not currently charged with any homicides. He does face four felonies in his most recent case, including sexual assault, false imprisonment, and strangulation. According to the criminal complaint, Lawrence recalled that he killed his first woman at the age of 16. Lawrence said his hatred towards women started to ramp up in his 20s after he got into a physical altercation with his mother and almost strangled her to death. That's that a, that a, guy does not just break down and start admitting to killing, unless he's bragging. It depends on the tone, but he didn't just break down and start feeling guilty. So he's either bragging because he doesn't think they'll ever find it or convict him of it or are we just there's a lot of details we don't know because something doesn't add up here lawrence said the last time he killed someone was a couple years ago before he was locked up wisn 12 news why would he admit that has confirmed that law enforcement is looking into his claims and if true would make him a serial killer like henry lee lucas admitted to a a ton of ones that he supposedly didn't commit but in this context it doesn't make sense there's so much we need to learn right and false confessions are not 
uncommon. No, as we've haven't. talked about a lot. And, but usually, like you say, it, beca- it comes down to their ego. They're bragging because they've either been caught and they know they're not going anywhere, or they know they'll never get caught for, or convicted of those of those killings. So, uh, w- when it comes to somebody who's doing this intentionally and it loves it. They're not doing it because their guilty conscience caught up to them. So there's more we need to learn, obviously. So this is quite the story that we have for you today. Right now, it, unlike a lot anything else we've talked about, as, as many of our episodes have been this. You know, ap- soon after this happened, this was a pretty massive story. Um, and then it kind of fizzled out and it was forgotten for a while, for decades, really. And then it kind of blew up again due to pop culture. And now it's kind of been driven kind of back into forgotten territory now. But it's a story that you all know, at least parts of it, you likely all know. You just likely never realized the Wisconsin connection to it all. But let's go back to 1936, Time Magazine. Right, one of the most popular magazines maybe in American history. February 17th, 1936 edition of Time Magazine had an article in it about a priest from Appleton, Wisconsin. Theophilus Riesinger. Theophilus. Not Risinger, not Riesinger, Theophilus Riesinger. As you told me off, Mike, that's very German, and I was pronouncing it Risinger, but he's German. That's Riesinger. Makes sense. Now, it's about a page long. Now, Father Theo, as he was known, uh, or he has a long white beard. He's wearing the traditional brown uh, tunic robe, right, with a large crucifix around his neck. Now, Theophilus was a Capuchin priest, and they're a traditional order of Franciscan friars within the Catholic Church. And they, you know, they wear the long brown robes with the hood and the sandals. We've all seen these, right, very, very Jedi-like, right, or... Friar Tux, if you prefer. San Diego Padres, if you prefer, right? I prefer Star Wars. There you go. Now, why would an Appleton priest be in Time magazine? Well, the article starts out by saying, quote, In St. Anthony's Monastery of the Capuchin Friars at Marathon, Wisconsin, last week, a wise and white-haired monk named Reverend Theophilus Riesinger went about his daily meditations indifferent to the fact that he was being widely publicized among U.S. Catholics as a potent and mystic exorcist of demons. Seems that Mr. Riesinger here liked to fight with the devil. Now Became kind of the guy, the authority on the subject. Now, it says Marathon because he was, he was based really both at Marathon and St. Joseph's Parish in Appleton. Marathon, obviously, in Marathon County, Marathon City being just west of Wausau, right along Highway 29. Now, Father Theo was actually born in Bavaria in Germany in 1868. February 27th, on a small family farm in a rural part of Bavaria. Highly religious from the young age, 12 years old, when he actually made the decision to vote, to devote his life to God while suffering from an illness. So 
He knew this about himself early on, before his teen years even. So he enters into the monastery at about 21 or 22 years of age. In 1889, in, in Altading, Germany. The village that still stands today is an important pilgrimage point. In 1489, the statue of Virgin Mary revived a young boy who had drowned in a river, according to the legend. That's how important this village was that he was, you know, joined the monastery in. At this time, Riesinger decided future Leiden priesthood, as I said, and entered the Order of Friars. However, the provincial father declined his application to priesthood for unknown reasons. It was speculated it was due to his anti-Marxist views. He dropped out of the monastery and went back to school in Salzburg, Germany. He graduated on February 2nd, 1892. Later in 1892, he left for the U.S. and stayed in New York for a brief time, re-entering the Capuchin Order. So from there, he ended up settling in Detroit, Michigan, where he began his life as a novitiate, which is a period or state of being novice, especially in a religious order. And on June 29th, 1899, the training and studies were finally complete. He finally was ordained as a priest of the Capuchin Order at St. Francis Monastery in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So he gets ordained in Milwaukee. His first assignment with the Capuchins, with the Catholic Church, was back at St. Fidelis in New York City. And then he transferred to St. Michael in Brooklyn. Now, while he's at St. Fidelis in New York City and then transfers to St. Michael in Brooklyn, he begins taking classes at Fordham University on socialism. Not because he was a socialist, but because he despised it. Obviously, coming from Europe, he saw it up close. He saw what he thought it was doing to the social classes in Europe. And he took classes to learn how to, quote, combat their false doctrines and their influence on the labor market more successfully, unquote. So he took classes at Fordham University on socialism so he could learn how to defeat it. Now, also at this time, according to his own statement, quote, circumstances, unquote, and we don't know exactly what those circumstances were, but he says circumstances forced him to take up work against evil spirits. So whatever work he was doing, you know, researching exorcism, researching how to cast out devils, right, began during his time in New York, and the diocese was a little bit nervous about it, right? So in 1912, they got him out of there. They transferred him to Wisconsin. Kind of kind of uh, Father Oswaldish, like yeah. at St. Nazian's. Right. You know, you got these priests that, that, are, that are doing things a little differently than They're the church does as a whole. They're not doing it the way we right? do it, so... While we're not telling you you're wrong, we're gonna get we're gonna move you somewhere else. Go to Wisconsin. Where it's almost like religion. Ru- if you we, don't follow our rules, you're gonna go somewhere. We're else. not gonna tell you you're wrong, but you're not gonna be with us anymore. Now, so in 1912, he's transferred to Wisconsin, and for the next 30 years, he alternates between Appleton and Marathon. And we, we've been to Appleton a couple times. Yeah. yeah. Like right as we speak. Oh, right now. Yeah. That's where my house is. Yeah, that's right. Now in Marathon. Um, he was instrumental in getting a new seminary built there, St. Anthony's Seminary in Marathon, which is still there today. It's not a monastery Don't anymore. Don't run there. It's not a monastery anymore. It's called St. Anthony's Spirituality Center. But he's really known as an Appleton priest. He was based in Appleton. He spent most of his time in Appleton. He's buried here in Appleton. Um, he did m- missionary work, and he, he traveled all over the country, really, doing missions. And, and you know, if you look him up in the places that he went in other states and other cities, when it's announced that he's coming, he's referred to as Father Theophilus Riesinger from Appleton, Wisconsin. So, And as we mentioned, St. Joseph's, this guy I'm talking to, has uh, close ties there. He was baptized there, and my dad went to school there. So... Yeah, we know this place mm-hmm. really well. So an article in the Post-Crescent in 1973 talks about Father Theophilus. Obviously, this is decades after he's already gone. 
And it says, quote, he was a humble man, but one who could preach with holy zeal. Quote, when he talked about hell and damnation, you listened, recalls Oscar Dorn, who was in Theophilus's third grade religion class at the time. And he was serious. Quote, I never remember him making a joke or engaging in light conversation. Unquote. Another old timer recalls. Many remember the man with the piercing eyes and the long white beard walking the streets of Appleton, his brown robes flying in the wind, his sandaled feet stepping briskly, stopping only to exchange greetings with children and parishioners. They say he was a kind man and cared for his flock. But Father Theophilus was known as something else throughout the country, something which his flock only heard about and never really understood. Father Theophilus was an exorcist. The exorcist. A man who drove evil spirits from the possessed. So he took demonic ritualism very seriously. Now, exorcism, obviously, is the practice of, what, cleansing demons or, or devils from a person who is believed to be possessed. And it's it's usually mostly associated with Catholicism, but really, really every evil. every culture in the I mean, world. The, the universe offers balance. There's good and evil. There's dark and night. There's the light side and the dark side. It's evil. I mean, and that's what Satanism, Satan, all that stuff, it, it, it just represents the, the, the dark side that the universe offers. And the devil is a big part of that, depending on your point of view and, and the context you're talking about. And really, it, it, every culture in the world now um, has and, and has, has some sort of right of exorcism, right? It's, Good it's, and bad, right? It's not only, again, it's associated with Catholicism and Christianity quite a bit, but it's every religion in the world. Uh, has some sort of, of right of exorcism. But in Catholicism, it goes back to the Bible, where Jesus exercises demons from people several times, and the powers of Christ were transmitted to the apostles and their successors. And the church's right of ordination to the priesthood includes the order of exorcist, in which Christ's power to cast out devils is transmitted. So anybody who's a priest or higher in the Catholic Church technically has the power brought unto him by Christ, right? to exercise demons from possessed people. Now, obviously, it's an ancient practice, but it's not really some kind of archaic mindset because even as the world has become much more secular in the centuries, obviously, and more and recent more, times. more aware of human behavior, psychology, right? and mental illness, and, and understanding that a lot of this stuff has to do with our brains and not necessarily supernatural beings and all that stuff. And I didn't even realize until Scott told me this off mic, Exorcisms still occur all the time. They're performed at a higher rate today than ever before. They're requested and performed at a higher rate today than before. Scott gave me one right before the episode. <laughs> it likely was not successful, though. What do you your, mean? Your eyes are glowing right now. It's the alcohol. That's all. It's the gummies. What are you talking about? It's the gummies. <laughs> yeah, no, the gummies are in my beard, too. Oh, I'm not actually oh that's right. These sons of... Stop judging. Now, now every diocese has to have access to an exorcist, even today, right? And you have to have express consent by the bishop in order to perform one. So even though this sounds like, you know, Father Theo here was uh, maybe a little overzealous with the demon possession angle, um, there were still people higher than him. Well, he was that had to overzealous, like you said. He, he he was a good guy. He was just trying to help. He wasn't even trying to hype himself, but. He was trying to help other people. Who oh, sure he was. Sure. But but he, on. by 1930, he had performed over 20 exorcisms, yeah. which is 
And I don't know that we know the numbers on this, but it is likely far and away more than any priest. Well, he in the became the go-to guy. Yeah. I mean, when when somebody wanted an exorcism back at these times, and again, a lot of our stories are are based in these times. Wisconsin death trip. A lot of these stories that we've talked about in Wisconsin history are based in these times. But things weren't quite the way they are now, and he was the guy to go to throughout the country. He, he became the guy for the Catholic Church, right? right. So now, now, what are the characteristics of possession that may cause the church to approve? such a thing, right? Well, if the person is, if they're using languages unknown to the person or people around them, so they're speaking in languages that they don't know or never studied, having extraordinary strength, knowledge of events or people that the person could not have possibly known, an aversion to holy objects or places such as holy water or churches, self-harming and displaying violent or aggressive behavior, ailments or conditions that cannot be diagnosed, having hallucinations or hearing voices, an abrupt change in behavior or personality, sudden spiritual dryness, expelling of objects through the mouth. We're going to cover all that. Right. And, you know, again, people like to look to mental illness and, the you know, they keep saying that, well, they didn't understand. Now, now we They do. didn't understand mental illness then, right? Well, so a lot of this stuff can be attributed to mental illness, and that's true. You know, when you look at having hallucinations, hearing voices, changes in behavior, of course. And we're going to cover some of the things she went through in her childhood would make perfect sense as to leading to those kinds of conclusions, but there are other things we're going to cover that cannot. There's no mental illness that allows you to speak languages that you never studied. Or levitate. Or, <laughs> or climb a wall. Right. Or projectile puke for... Right minutes if not hours at a time so, so yes there's things we're going to cover that you're going to be astounded by that are actually supposedly real not we're not talking about the movie theophilus was transferred to wisconsin in 1912 to both appleton and marathon and he would soon be introduced to a young girl and the two would go on to be the main characters in the most documented and popular case of demon possession and an exorcism in american history if not the world so the girl in question is known as Anna Eklund. That's a pseudonym. That's a fake name, right? We don't know exactly who it was, and that was for a reason. That was done for a reason by Father Theo to protect the identity of the girl. Even back then, even back in times where social media wasn't what it was, they were still trying to protect her. Imagine what it would be like now. Many researchers today believe her name was Emma Schmidt, but we don't really know. Some people say it's Emma Schmidt because they've found census records that support it and it seems to be the general consensus that her name was emma schmidt and that she and and we do know that she was born in 1882 and although that's true there are really no emma schmidt's that show up in census census records that really fit what we know about this girl so we don't really know who anna eckland was again consensus is that her real name was emma schmidt that we don't even really know Born on March 23rd, 1882, to German immigrants, Jacob Schmidt and mother, whose name, typically unknown, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, according to the story we're going to go to, but as Scott's going to allude to, there are other stories. Now, what we do know about this case, and the reason it's the quote-unquote most documented exorcism in American history is because a theologian wrote an account of it and published a book of it. Well, not, it's not even really a book. It was a pamphlet. It was a 45-page pamphlet in 1935 called Begone Satan. Originally written in German. Originally written in German by a, by a German theologian named Karl Vogel. Right. And it was translated in English and sent out to parishes across 
America. Now, in Be Gone Satan, the girl is named Anna Eklund. Again, that is a pseudonym to protect the girl's identity, and that's the name that it uses. And that book is going to be sourced here a lot. We're, I'm going to, we're going to read from it. A lot of the information of from we it, yeah. get is from that, because that is kind of the account of what happened during this exorcism. Now, there's another account of it, which was not published, and it was actually written a year earlier. It was written in 1934, and it's much less known, right? And it was not published because the church didn't let it be published. And that was written by, by a guy named Reverend F.J. Bunsey, Reverend Frederick Bunsey. And he calls her, quote, Mary X, unquote. And he says that this is taken right from Father Theophilus's own documents. And there is also, and, and we have, there is evidence that supports that. There's a lot of people that don't believe that. And they say, no, Father Theophilus's records are in the Vatican. That's true. But when did they get there? So there's evidence to support Reverend Bunsey's account as well. There's also a very recent book written in the 80s called The Devil Rocked Her Cradle, which also calls her Mary. So we have no idea who Anna Eklund was. No concrete. No concrete idea. I mean, we know more about Father Riesinger than we do about her at this point. But going forward, we'll be referring to her as Emma because her life is, she's long past, as we mentioned. We have no disrespect, so I will be referring to her as Emma going forward, just to let everyone know. It seems like Father Theo's goal here of keeping her identity a secret, even a hundred years later. It worked later, at the time. It, hel- it worked still. It, well, it in helped. 2016, they came out of the movie that we'll talk about later with that same name. So Anna Eklund. Yeah. The Exorcism of Anna Eklund, yeah. Did you watch it? No. It's as good as that. It's, it's, let, me, let me just say this. It is, and this is legit, this is legit what I really feel. One of, piece of crap one of the top ten worst movies I've ever seen. It say. is utter garbage. How, how something, and it's not an American movie. It was it was made in, in Britain, so I don't know what Britain is. I mean, and you're, you're a little more critical of movies than you used to be just because you just don't think there's not. You it know, is hot garbage, man. Much, yeah, and it's, that's, don't, I, I don't even bother. It. I didn't bother because I assumed that. So. You know, and I, to tell you the truth, I, and, and, you know, Mickey and I do, I think, our due diligence and research. Yeah. I don't believe her name was Emma Schmidt either. So we, we don't, there's no concrete evidence anywhere that we can point to and document that this is that girl. There's nothing. There's nothing there. So, you know, long story short, we, we don't know exactly who Anna Eklund, Emma Schmidt, we don't know who she was. That does not mean, however, that we don't know anything about the girl. And we don't, that doesn't mean that the facts or the details we're going to tell you are not factual. So even though we don't know exactly who she was, it doesn't mean that we don't know anything about her. We just don't know her name, right? There are people, including Carl Vogel, who wrote Begone Satan, who interviewed the witnesses Not long after. of the exorcism, who talked to the people that knew Emma. That were there. Right, and gathered information about her. So we can get a bit of an idea of what was going on here. Now, in the beginning of the book, The Devil Rocked Her Cradle, which was written by an author named David St. Clair. Some of you might be familiar with him. He's passed now, but he was... He was big in the 80s. And he also wrote a book that I, I, I read in high school called Say You Love Satan, which was a kind of a popular book back then. And he kind of piggybacked off of the, the satanic panic of the 1980s It's weird that era. you read that in high school. It kind of tells me a lot. You were you were a bad boy back then. Yes, I was. I was not doing Satan worship, though. But, you I mean, know, so that he... explains he, a lot that I didn't necessarily <laughs> know about. He wrote a lot about, about this genre, right? And Satan worship, Satan possession devil worship devil possession this this is kind of of his gig right so in in the beginning of the book the devil rocked her cradle he makes a disclaimer and he says quote 
read this first. <laughs> read this first. So he wants you, he's being very clear here. Right. And read this kind of first. To the point, yeah. This story is true. It is based on names, dates, and events that have all been verified by the Roman Catholic Church. The background facts first appeared in a German-language Catholic magazine called the Lieb Frauenbote. Nice. The editor, Reverend Karl Vogel, was a friend of Father Theophilus Riesinger and obtained the story from him firsthand. Reverend Vogel was a responsible editor as well as a responsible Catholic. As a canonist, his rank in the Catholic Church was equivalent to that of bishop. The exorcist, Father Theophilus, corrected the text, editing out the more unsavory parts. After all, he had been there. It was his story. The English-language version appeared in 1935 in a translation entitled Begone Satan. It has been reprinted many times. You can still purchase it. In other words, this story, told by those who lived it, is true. Well, as we said, Father Theophilus arrives here in 1912 after he gets transferred out of New York because he's doing weird stuff with exorcism. He didn't perform any exorcisms up to this point. So as we said, Father Theophilus arrives here in 1912. And within weeks, the case of a local young woman from Marathon, who we know as Emma Schmidt, is brought to his attention. Now, from what researchers are, have been able to, to piece together about her, as we said, there's discrepancies all over the place. Born in 1882, that we know from Begone Satan. Born in Milwaukee, moved with her family to Marathon when she was very young. Appears to be an only child. Again, there's another account of another Emma Schmidt where she was one of like eight or nine siblings. That doesn't fit. So she's very close to her mother as a young girl. And we don't know her mother's name. They were raised. She was raised in a Catholic household because of her mother's beliefs. During the first 14 years, Emma was a practicing and devout Catholic, attending church several times a week, again, because of her mother's influence. Seemingly enjoyed religious ceremony and rituals of religion. She enjoyed it. She was with her mother. Her mother enjoyed it. You know, typical household back then, at least in that regard. Quote, throughout her youth, she led a religious, fervent, and blameless life. In fact, she approached the sacraments frequently. Unquote. That's from Begone Satan. She would go to church with her mother sometimes two to three times a day. So obviously her mother, a very devout Christian, instills that into Emma. Her father, however... Was not. No. And we know his Pretty name. Pretty much the opposite. We know how he's referred to. He's referred to as Jacob. And Jacob not only was not religious, he would mock his daughter and his wife for being so. And, the yeah, the Catholic Church in general. He would laugh at them about believing in that nonsense. He would curse at them. He'd cuss at them when they would go to church. He was an alcoholic. He was an abuser. Couldn't hold a job, Right. Emma, unfortunately, would hear the turmoil of their relationship. She would hear her father beat her mother. Typical situation. Abusive, alcoholic father was beating the mother and, and at some point probably reaches down to the daughter. As a result of all this, her education level never reached higher than the elementary level. But being in a town heavily settled by Germans, as we kind of alluded to, she did learn the German language as well as the English languages in early childhood. So she, even at that age, not having been educated past the elementary level, she was bilingual because that was common in this area, in this st state, because it's a predominantly German state, especially back then. I want to read a passage from The Devil Rocked Her Cradle. And again, this is taking some dramatic license. Fully understand that. But the point is, the point is to give you an idea of the, of the, the household that she grew up in. 
right? This is this is pieced together from from interviews that were done with people that knew her and that were there during the exorcism. So this is strictly dramatic license to give you an idea of the kind of upbringing that Emma Schmidt had while in Marathon, Wisconsin. And this is told from when when Emma was pretty much a baby, and it's told from her perspective as a baby before the, like before the age of five at least when her mother's still alive. And the, it right. doesn't we don't know her mother's name, so she's referred to in this passage as the mama. Quote from inside her tiny skull and through her tiny eyes, she could see what the mama had to endure with the father. There were the nights when the father came home and fell over chairs and finally fell into bed. Then there were the nights when the father came home and made the mama cry. He would raise his voice to her, and sometimes he slapped her. And the worst time of all is when he pushed her onto the bed and pulled up her nightdress and got on top of her, and while he made strange noises and thrashed about, the mama just lay there with tears in her eyes and muffled cries in her throat. On those nights, Emma would roll over onto her side, face the wallpaper pattern, and pretend she was asleep. She didn't like it when the mama cried out. She didn't like it when the father shouted, pulled away from the mama, and then went silent to sleep. When the mama finally got out of bed, went to the bathroom, and then came back and put on her nightdress, she would come over to the crib, and Emma would pretend she was asleep. The mama would cover the baby with a blanket, pat her baby's head, put out the gaslight on the wall, and get back into the bed with the father. But the father didn't hear this. He would be making strange noises in his throat, noises that meant he was asleep, and far removed from what had just happened in the small bedroom. Emma would roll over very quietly and watch as the mama lay there in the darkness, eyes wide open, Silent tears running down her cheeks. So dad maybe was so drunk he didn't even know what he was doing. This is the household that Anna Eklund or Emma Schmidt grew up in. And we probably even to this day know of households in our lives that no doubt. still exist like that. But and, and I believe even though there's much many more people now that it existed a lot more back then because we weren't as quick to call people out for being that way. So this is what Emma Schmidt deals with in, at, at home. And mo- a lot more of this comes out later, by the way. This right. is not an isolated incident. No. Now, when Anna is about eight or nine years old, her mother falls ill. And we're not sure what the illness is, but this is 1890s-ish rural Wisconsin, right? It's really hard to get medical help. Now, her mother's sister, Mina, comes and helps at the house. Helps. So this is Emma's aunt, right? Aunt Mina. And Mina's doing most of the housework, right? Mom is sick in bed. She's pretty much bedridden. Mina's doing the housework. She's cooking. She's doing laundry and so forth, right? So she's being helpful at first. But Anna, again, who's eight or nine years old, she's not an idiot. She begins to notice that Jacob, her father, spends a lot of time in Aunt Mina's bedroom. Several weeks after Mina's arrival, Emma's mother passes away. So now Emma's nine years old. She has an alcoholic, abusive father who treats her like a burden and an aunt who actually disappears for a while after her mother dies, but returns several years later. And Mina, to her her own credit, had a colorful background of her own. She was well-known in town for practicing witchcraft and black magic. Also said to have killed her own four children, though never proven, there was that rumor spooking oh, is around. Is that it? So, yeah. What, yeah. I mean. A little, little background knowledge there. I that, mean, we all have stuff said right. about us. I mean. What's well, a little secrets among friends? I don't man. think anyone's ever accused me of killing four children that were my own, but people talk. So now when she comes back into the, into the home, she too is clearly an alcoholic. She's very mean to Emma. She's verbally abusive. You can imagine the life that Emma is living here now, right? Her only solace from this toxic home 
is going to church, praying, going to mass, receiving communion. That's what made her comfortable. That's what kept her connected to her mother, who's gone now, right? She was the only solace that she had, too. Now, by the time she turns 14, something starts changing in her. Right? She begins acting strangely. She wouldn't like going to church. She would get angry at church. Regularly missing it. She would have thoughts of shattering the holy water font in the church. She had urges to physically attack her spiritual advisors, which she actually did once. Choked him. She'd speak of hypersexualized thoughts of, quote, unspeakable acts, unquote, signs of depression. When questioned, she said she couldn't even enter the church without violent thoughts entering her mind, being held back by supposed, quote, interior hidden power, unquote. And a lot of these actions would be sporadic, right? The church would actually tell her father what, what was going on, and, and Emma would not remember it. Like, she would not remember saying these vile things to the priest. Quote, the situation became worse instead of improving. Words cannot express what she had to suffer. She was actually barred from the consolations of the church, torn away from them by force. She could not help herself in any way and seemed to be in the clutches of some mysterious power, unquote. So there's like, she's, she, even when she wants to go to church, she like physically can't enter it. She can't go in. There's like something forcibly keeping her away. So and she, she would be smashing holy water fonts, harming priests, desecrating consecrated items. And as, as Scott mentioned, she physically was incapable of entering. So that there's actually one account where she is in the church and she's praying and it's not during mass. She's just in there praying. And she begins screaming and kind of spastically flailing herself around, right? And she was seemingly thrown across the floor. And Emma's very small. She's been small stature her whole life. Even when she was an adult, she's very small. And this is still when she's a teenager. She goes flying to the floor. and She goes sliding, you know, for feet. And one of the friars goes to help her up. And he couldn't pick her up because she was so heavy. It's like she was bolted down to the floor. As a small little girl. And eventually she's able to get herself back up again, and she has no remembrance of what the hell just happened. Why am I on the floor, right? So it's almost like she loses consciousness, and she loses behavior. She loses control of her own behavior, and, and, and is, she, is being forced to do these things against her will. She actually, at some point, would even claim it was all due to the torment put on her by her obviously abusive father, as we mentioned, Jacob, and Aunt Mina, alleged witch, while they were still alive. Mina allegedly even placed curses on her and put spells on herbs in her food. So she was actually taken to see doctors for quote-unquote nervousness. And that's a term, it's kind of an all-encompassing term at that time for, you know, anxiety, paranoia, hallucinating, right? It says, quote, the woman was finally examined by the best specialist in the profession. So she's been going to see, they've been taking her to see doctors to find out what's going on. Nobody has any clue, Right. So finally, they take her to see, quote, the best specialist in the profession. But their thorough examinations resulted in the unanimous conclusion that the woman in question did not betray the least sign of nervousness, that she was normal in the fullest sense. There was not the slightest indication suggesting physical illness. Her undeniable and unusual experiences could not be accounted for, unquote. So they don't know what the hell is going on with her. She is normal in the fullest sense. She had not the slightest indication of physical illness. Meanwhile, she's losing consciousness and cursing at priests and being thrown across the floor, right? They, they can't find anything wrong with her. But what they didn't know 
because she didn't say anything until much later. And with her behavior, nobody would have believed her was that her own father was attempting to have an incestuous relationship with her. Between the ages of 10 and 14, Jacob actually tried pressuring Emma into an incestuous relationship several times. Several. So we don't even know how much that means. She always outright flatly refused. She knew it was wrong. This caused much tension, spiraling the relationship into a very dark place as it always happens. But the point is, she knew better and yet he kept persisting. And he ended up becoming even more angry at her over time. And her witch of an aunt. That's gonna literally f- witch of an aunt. That's going to fuck you up? Yeah. I mean, first of all, he's, you know, having sexual relationship with his her mother's sister. And she's a witch putting spells on her food and all that. So, yeah. That alone, these are telltale red flags. I mean, she's this girl going to have some issues because of what she's raised by, especially after her protective mother, her mother who was the only barrier, her only calling grace passed away. Now dad can take over and and the witch of a sister could come in. Yeah, there's major issues going on here. To our point as far as documentation, after this... There's just not much reliable documentation of her existence or behavior for the next 16 years. Right. Now, years, years pass here, and she's still suffering a lot, but she's able to function to a point. She goes on with her life. Father's still a drunk. Mina's still a witch, you know, (laughs) performing black magic, putting spells on people and whatnot, right? She has a reputation in the community. Sounds like a screwed up 80s movie, to be honest. (laughs) And the church begins to see an escalation in Anna. And she begins to understand languages she didn't know. Quote, the woman understood languages that she had never heard nor read. When the priest spoke the language of the church and blessed her in the Latin tongue, she sensed and understood it at once, and the same time foamed at the mouth and became enraged about it. When he continued in classical Latin, she she regained her former ease. She was conscious at once when someone gave her articles sprinkled with holy water, or presented her with things secretly blessed, whereas ordinary secular objects would leave her perfectly indifferent, unquote. So what that's saying, so Father Theo is here now. It's 1912, Father Theo is here now, so he knows Anna. She's his parishioner, right? And he sees these things that are going on with her, so he does these tests on her to see if she's really possessed. Because now he's thinking, this, you know, you've been to doctors, they're saying nothing's wrong with you. There's clearly something going on with you, so now I'm going to check to see if you're possessed. So he would do these tests, and he would speak to her in Latin. And she would talk back to him in Latin, having no idea ever in her life of what Latin was. She knew German and English, as I alluded to earlier, and she wouldn't know anything about Latin, and yet she's never studied it. able to communicate in the language, which is a dead language even at that point. So they would speak to each other in Latin, but when he would bless her in Latin, she would become enraged and start foaming at the mouth. Because it's a religious thing. He also did tests with fake holy water, where he would sprinkle water on her, and she didn't know if it was blessed or not. So if he would sprinkle water on her, just normal water, she would have no reaction. When he would sprinkle holy water on her, she would become enraged and start foaming at the mouth. Right, so now he's there's there's a pattern here that Father Theophilus is seeing, of this woman ain't right. So the church recommends an exorcism when Emma 
is 30 years old in 1912. So in 1912, the Bishop of Green Bay, the Bishop of the Green Bay Diocese, turns to the newly arrived priest, Father Theophilus Riesinger, who's only been here for several months, right? He came here in the beginning of 1912. They call on Father Riesinger to exercise Emma on June 18th, 1912. Allegedly his first exorcism, quote, These voices tried their utmost to arouse thoughts of the most shameful type within her and tried to induce her to do things unmentionable and even bring her to despair. The poor creature was helpless and secretly was of the opinion that she would become insane, unquote. Now, again, as Mickey said, this was Father Riesinger's first exorcism. A lot, there's a lot of descriptions out there that's saying that because he was so well-versed in exorcisms, they turned to him to exorcise Emma. No, Not in this first This one. was his first exorcism A lot of times they, 1912. people are referring to the, to the one that we're going right. to, this whole story is about, but this is the first one when she was still fairly young. 30 years old in 1912. Yeah, no. not fairly young, but I mean, she, she'd been dealing with her demons for a while, but this is one that isn't talked about. There was multiple exorcisms in her life, as we alluded to, and this is the first one he did, that, for, first of her and first for him. So, And we have zero documentation of that exorcism right. other than that it happened. No, nothing. No notes, nothing. There are notes, obviously, but again, they're in the Vatican. There's nothing that survives in any church here that talks about what happened in that first exorcism, which leads me to believe that the other ones were seen because it's universal that nobody says they saw anything from this first exorcism. But yet there's people that say that they've had conversations with and seen notes from the other exorcisms. And this one eventually completed and considered successful. Considered successful, keep in mind. Emma's life, as we know it, was supposed to have gone back to some sort of normalcy and obscurity. So now apparently this exorcism by Father Theo, as Mickey said, was successful for a while. But again, we, there's no documentation about that exorcism. But by the time Emma was 40, or in her early 40s, again, there's some discrepancy there. The church knew it had to do it again. And again, Father Theo, who by now is quite known within the church of his experience doing exorcisms, uh, is again tasked by the Bishop of Green Bay to exorcise Emma Schmidt. And during this time lapse... Her father, Jacob, and Aunt Mina both passed away, and once again, Emma found it difficult to practice her religion, which is what leads up to all this. Now, Theophilus, who spoke very little of his cases, there's a quote from here saying, As to my exorcisms, I have not published a single word, nor have I asked any person to publish a single word for me, but I have sent a complete account of all that has happened to the Holy See. Rome alone is competent to judge. Until Rome speaks, I shall be silent, unquote. So he, he's, he's, obviously he published very little of his exorcisms, and, and it is true that most of, most of his cases he spoke nothing about, but we do have plenty of evidence that he did speak a little bit about the exorcism here of Anna Eklund or Emma Schmidt. He says, quote, I watched this case for years before I acted. She was my penitent. She confessed to me. Unquote. So again, he's saying he knew her, and he's saying he watched her for years. He was observing for years before he did the exorcism, and that's why it has to be 
the the later exorcism and not the one in 1912 because that one happened so soon after he had been there. And as far as her actions, th- this time her anti-religion actions actually got so much worse, including even lashing out at a spiritual counselor and attempting to suffocate him at one point. Now she began hearing voices and gaining compulsive urges to destroy her religious symbols, all driving her to depression and belief that she was becoming insane, even more so than she was long ago when we first mentioned. She believed her spirits of her father and her aunt were tormenting her and tempting her demonic forces into her mind and body. She claimed she hadn't experienced a day of peace in decades. He says, quote, again, this is after the fact. This is from an interview in the 1930s. He said, quote, she had always been very good, but all at once she did not come to church anymore. Again, this is after the first exorcism. She did not come to church anymore. Well after. She refused to receive the sacraments. She could no longer see the error in her ways, and she was tormented day and night by terrible phantasms. My duty was to find out whether or not there was a possession. You cannot imagine the terrible symptoms and feelings that possessed persons have. Strange cats and dogs talk to them in the night. They cannot perform their religious duties. They are kept away from the sacraments. They are exceedingly unhappy. And as we alluded to the first time, initially she sought help of doctors over many periods of years because she knew there was something wrong. Several qualified doctors observed and dismissed her her as physically fit and well as they did way back when. So now in 1928, when Emma is 46... They both agree that it's time to go through with another exorcism. They both agree that's important because Emma, in her moments of clarity, right, understands what's happening to her. She understands she's not well. She's still discouraged and depressed. She turned to the help of the church, which spent years attempting to alleviate her of her condition, only failing. However, they did note several oddities they found difficult to explain naturally. She suddenly was able to understand languages she never previously studied or understood, as we mentioned, with Latin, particularly Latin, which when spoken to her, she foamed at the mouth, becoming enraged, as Scott mentioned. She could also speak Hebrew, Italian, Polish, and other Slavic languages. Quick learner. Yeah, right. I mean, hooked on phonics didn't even exist. It's quite the mental illness she and, has. And hooked on <laughs> That's mental illness? She's yeah. becoming smarter. That's sure, ironic. Right. And hooked on phonics didn't exist yet. She also suddenly was able to sense when blessed articles were nearby, as Scott kind of alluded to earlier, becoming furious and calling out the priest for doing it. Even normal objects blessed and touched with holy water, she demanded articles be immediately removed. She remained indifferent towards unblessed and un- unconsecrated objects. So she knew. And when asked if supernatural forces were involved, she acted totally unaware and unable to give any info about the sources afterwards. So these were out-of-body experiences, essentially, is what we're talking about. So now, again, in 1928, they both agree it's time to go on with another exorcism. Now, there is a report that she was actually exorcised by Father Theo again in 1926, apparently happening in Milwaukee. It's very vague, and there's, again, there's nothing concrete about that. There's apparently no notes about that exorcism either. So we know that she was exorcised by him at least twice, probably three times. It would make sense. It's just not documented, as a lot of this stuff wasn't very well documented to begin with. And they know now that this one they're going to do in 1928, uh, this one will not be pleasant. (laughs) So again, he wants to protect her from any embarrassment this may cause. She any, any scorn she might have, possibly from the community. So he wants to do it somewhere else. Definitely not in Marathon, a small community, right? 
So there's likely some thought about doing it in Appleton, and I would think that he probably preferred to do it in Appleton so she wouldn't have to travel so far, but he, he couldn't do it. It wasn't remote enough. It was too close. It was people would find out. And so we weren't even here yet. Well, yeah, like, what the heck? Why wouldn't he wait for us? Yeah. So he wasn't comfortable doing it here. So actually, when he was on a mission around that time in a little town called Erling, Iowa, which is a small town closer to the Nebraska border, just west of Des Moines, he got the idea to do it there because it's a rural location. They had a convent of Franciscan sisters where they could do it at, and he knew, was friends with, and trusted the parish priest there, Father Joseph Steiger. So he asked Steiger to do the exorcism there. And Steiger didn't want to do it. <laughs> he was very nervous about this, right? He didn't want to unleash anything in his community. So he said he didn't think that the mother superior would allow it in the convent either. So he said, it's you know, it's probably not going to happen. But he agreed because of that reason, figuring someone with superior power would not allow it. Right. Basically, Father Theo asked him, if we can get the mother superior to agree to this, would you then agree to it? Sure. Thank you. There's Theo no said, way yeah. she's agreeing with this. Yeah. Hell yeah, go ahead. Yeah, do, do what you have to. So Father Theo drops the punchline on him. I already got permission from the Mother Superior. Oh, so, crap. Saddle up, buddy. Wow, did that backfire. So next was a call from the Bishop of Des Moines, who warned Steiger about what could happen. And he said, quote, As bishop, I will caution you most emphatically that there may be some very serious consequences resulting to you in person. The devil will certainly try his utmost to seek revenge on you, should you be willing that this unfortunate woman be relieved of this terrible oppression. So the Bishop of Des Moines is telling Steiger, he's coming after Bad you, idea. buddy. He's coming after you. Because you made the decision. I, yeah, why, why it's on him, and that that's kind of puzzling to me, but that's what he said. But Steiger, because he had already given Father Theo his And it's his friend. It's his, it's his trusted friend. So, I mean. He says, all right. Right. So he very reluctantly agrees. So travel arrangements are made for them all to go to Erling, Iowa. And nobody outside the parish had any idea what was happening, right? Nobody in Marathon, nobody in Appleton, nobody in Erling to begin with, just the people inside the parish that need to know. Father Theo, Joseph Steiger, the Mother Superior, and the sisters, really, who were the Franciscan sisters who, who needed to help during the exorcism. That is all the only people that knew. And again, because they wanted to keep it relatively secret, anonymous, and avoid unwanted attention. Hopefully allowing her to return to a normal life after the procedure. And Erling, as we mentioned, was a quiet town with only a few hundred residents, so it was a perfect situation. So they put Emma on a train to Erling. And they had to, you know, forewarn the crew of the train that this is a disturbed woman, right? Because she no longer can really control her behavior here. They didn't tell them what was going on. They didn't say she's, you know, possessed by the devil. But they told her, they told the crew, this is this is a disturbed woman, so please, you know, do what you need to do, but make sure she's safe. Remove her, put her in a different room, a different stage, whatever you need to do, but make sure she gets to Erling, Iowa, safely. And it was close enough to Des Moines, that there was a ma major railway that would actually cross or pass by. But she made it, right? And she made it, and apparently, according to the crew, it was a rough go. 
But she got there, and she, when she got there, when she gets to the train station, she, quote, is so enraged over those who were there to meet her that she felt like taking hold of them and choking them, unquote. So again, she still has this unbelievable rage inside of her body about anything to do with uh, religion, Catholicism, getting whatever is in her out of her. Again, when she has her little bits of clarity, she wants this to happen. When she herself was very willing and happy, and happy to enlist the church's help, but as Scott's alluding to, the evil side of her would lash out, choking anybody who approached her. So Father Theophilus took the train as well, but he took a different one, and he took a different route. They didn't want him together. So Joseph Steiger, who obviously lives in Erling, he's minutes away from the train station, is going to go pick him up. In his new car. In his brand new car, right? Brand new car. And he has all... Nice prices, right? <laughs> he has all kinds of trouble getting there. The car's choking out. It's not going anywhere. It's not accelerating. He finally arrives after two hours. No mechanical fault was found in the car, by the way. In a ride that should have taken him literally minutes. And the car had no reason to stall or fail in any way, because as we said, it was new. So he gets to the station and he you know, profusely apologizes to Father Theo. I'm sorry I'm late. I'm two hours two late. Two hours late. And Theo is very calm. And he says, quote, I would have been much more surprised if everything had gone smoothly, unquote. So they're fully understanding that this devil, this demon, whatever it is, is going to do whatever it's in his power to stop this exorcism from happening. So Father Theo uh, was not all that surprised that, uh, Joseph Steiger was having some issues here. So Emma gets to the convent, right? She's fairly calm when she gets there. She looks like hell. But she gets to the convent. Ironically. <laughs> nice choice of words. She gets to the convent, and she's hungry. You know, even though she she doesn't eat hardly anything, this girl, she's hungry. So the sisters meet her. They, you know, they introduce her uh, themselves to her, and they one of them, Sister Eliana, fixes her some food. They bring her up to her room, and Sister Eliana is fixing her some food. And, and Emma presents as very friendly, very friendly, very shy, you know. So Sister Eliana is in the kitchen. She she prepares her a plate of food and she does what all of the sisters do when they prepare food and bring it to somebody to eat at the convent. She sprinkled it with holy water. Sure. Now you can't see this, right? It's just a little sprinkle of holy water. That's what water. I do when Scott enters sure. my home before we do these episodes. So again, I want to read you a little passage here from the Devil Rocked Cradle to give you an idea of what they saw that night. So again, she's bringing her food splashed with holy water up to her room. Emma answers the door. She presents appropriately. They're having some small talk. And she says, quote, mm, this smells good. I like roast beef. I almost never get to eat it. And when I do, it's usually so tough. It." She stopped smiling and looked up sharply at the sister. What in the hell did you do to this pile of vomit? What is this shit scattered all over it? She scraped a spoon across the potatoes and then threw the spoon at the wall. What kind of games you playing with me, old bitch? Sister Eliana turned to beat red. For a second, she couldn't regain her voice. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you don't know what I'm talking about. About this water, this holy piss stuff you splashed all over everything. You expect me to eat this junk? Let me get one thing straight with you. I don't eat food that's splashed with this shit. You understand me, old lady? You want me to eat? Then you bring me decent food and cut out the Catholic nonsense. You understand me? The elderly woman backed away, visibly shaking. No one had ever spoken to her in such a way. 
I just brought the food the way that it always is. I'm not interested in always around here. Take this garbage out of here and bring me another plate without all the piss splattered all over it. I'll get you a new plate. Without the piss on it. Without it. I promise. Sister Eliana backed out the door and Emma slammed it. Sister Eliana hurried down the steps, paused just long enough at the Mother Superior's doorway. He's here already. Who? The Mother Superior said. Satan. He's here. Upstairs. In that woman's body. I got the willies four times, as you mentioned, and I don't, I don't creep easy. I mean, it's like I was watching The Exorcist, but the whole point is, like, mid-quote, she's all sweet and nice, accepting right. what's going on, and then, and you could hear, I recognized when you were reading it, how she switched. like Instantly. Right, and this, I mean, nowadays they would call this multiple personality disorder. Dissociative. Or now, dis, dissociative yeah. personality disorders. Yeah, that's the new term they have for it. A different personality took over, but in this case, it's just the holy water triggered her. So it's it's hard to believe that it's a mental illness and it, how aware of the religious presence that's going on that these demons or this personality or whatever is going on is it's fully aware, fully capable of stepping forward when these religious happenings occur. It's it's crazy to use the wrong word, most likely. The next morning, the exorcism would begin. So they used a large room on the second floor of the convent, and it, this this room was mainly used for storage, right? So there's nothing. I mean, it was it was just filled with stuff. You know, it was cleared out. And only a specially ordered double bed with an iron frame made to, quote, withstand a pounding, unquote, with an extra thick mattress was in the room. All this is ordered by Father Theophilus, right? Only cotton mattress covers are allowed on the bed, so there's no sheets. There's no blankets. There's no pillows. Nothing on the bed except for cotton covers in the room. There's no tables. There's no chairs. There's no rugs on the wood floor. There's no pictures on the walls. No religious relics, no crosses, no crucifixes, nothing. It's a blank room. And this is August 18th, 1928. The pastor, the priests, attended morning mass, then with various holy symbols, went to Emma's room to begin the second overall and first attempt of this session of exorcisms. So now there was one single window in the room that was covered by a white curtain, so there was sunlight coming in, and there was a galvanized metal bucket that Father Theophilus put under the bed. And let me just say that that bucket would not be enough for what was coming. It's not a honey bucket. Let's just say that. So Emma willingly walks in the room, and she's with the mother superior and two sisters. And now the sisters would be on a rotation of two each day. And they're there to help, right? They're there to cater to Anna, to do what they can do to help, get her what she needs, hold her down, really. They said that they use the strongest sisters they have. She was placed firmly on the mattress of iron bed, arms, sleeves, and dress tied to keep her dressed and prevent her from breaking free. The strongest nuns selected to hold her quiet on the bed. Right. So she's not like, uh, you know, she's, she's not stapled down. She's not being held down by any kind of equipment. She's just being held by the nuns to protect the herself. The strongest, right. the butchest of nuns. That's true. Now, again, she was, she was wearing a simple gray go- cotton gown as instructed by Father Theo, and it was to cover her body to her ankles, but was loose enough that her body had plenty of room to move around in it. 
And like Mickey said, it, her, it was tied around her wrists and ankles because they knew that there was going to be some inappropriate um, gestures, flashing, whatever it would be. Resistance, to sure. say the least. Yeah. Emma laid on the bed, looked at Father Theo, smiled, and closed her eyes. Father Theo began saying prayers over her. And this went on for several minutes until he began saying the Holy Trinity and the sign of the cross. And this is when Emma begins screaming. And as it began, Father knew almost immediately that the affair would be prolonged, to say the least, and spanned several attempts. He knew immediately this was going to be a fight. So now Emma's screaming as he's saying these prayers. No, 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 right? Father Theo continues on with the prayers. And again, from And the Devil Rocked Her Cradle. It says, Emma shouted, and with a single thrust of her legs, she catapulted from the mattress to the very ceiling of the room. Her fingers dug deep in the plaster, tearing small holes, tearing small holes in which she clung while her feet swung up flat against the ceiling, where she hung like a bat. Anna continued to scream as the sisters were trying to pull her down. Right. Imagine this scene. This girl just catapulted from the bed to the ceiling, and she's clinging there with her hands, and now she put her feet up flat on the ceiling, and she's hanging on the ceiling like a bat. Right. So the nurse, the, the, the nuns are trying to pull her down, and they hear this screaming coming from Emma. But the screaming was a voice that was harsh and masculine, growly, masculine voice. Emma twists her head around, and they can see that her features had already become distorted. Her eyes were smaller, her cheekbones had been distended, her jaw was pointed and jutted out, and the male's voice hurled out curses at the sisters trying to pull her down as Father Theo came closer. The deep voice said, quote, get your shit-filled body away from me, old man, unquote. And it was here that the sisters realized that Emma was not moving her lips when this was talking. She's become a puppet at this point. The words are emanating from her body. But she's not speaking. These words are not coming from her mouth. Now, eventually, they're able to get Anna down, back onto the bed, and the sisters clung to her body to hold her down. Again, only the strongest sisters, right? The strongest are sisters. Are clinging to her body, trying to hold her down. Not having eaten much for weeks and only a teaspoon of water and milk on exorcism mornings, she began frothing at the mouth and repeatedly vomiting vast amounts. It was said she would vomit up to 20 or 30 times a day, at times just bile and liquid, and other times actual items such as tobacco and tea leaves, spices, and chewed macaroni. She reportedly also frequently urinated and defecated. Through the ordeal, the room was filled with a foul stench, and Emma remained comatose, eyes closed, so tight they couldn't be opened, and completely unaware of her happenings. Macaroni. We're quite a picture. Macaroni and sliced tobacco leaves. Stuff there's no and She way. ate no food. No. Right. Not for a long time. I mean, this picture is it's given me the willings. Oh. And on, on the first day, on the first day when they got her down from the ceiling, she vomited a stream of reddish brown liquid that hit Father Theophilus right in his face. Now that is how the exorcism started. Right. right. Now this if this, this sounds, is the beginning. If this sounds like the exorcist Right, and I'm sure a it's lot of you have seen The Exorcist. If you're, if you're listening to this, you've you've likely seen or seen parts of The I Exorcist. I just watched it for the first time a couple of years ago. It's, it's because this is 
The Exorcist. And this is one of the most horrific movies of all time. It was one of the most money-making movies of all time, especially back then. I think it's still in the top five. But, yeah, that movie doesn't even portray what actually happened according to these accounts. The Exorcism of Anna Eklund, or The Exorcism of Emma Schmidt, whatever you want to say, is the source material for William Peter Blatty when he wrote The Exorcist, the book, and then subsequently when he wrote the screenplay for the movie. Now, it's known that The Exorcist was was originally inspired by another demon possession case in St. Louis, and this was in 1949, and that's known as The Exorcism of Roland Doe. That's another fake name. That was a boy, apparently, who was being exorcised. Firstly, it started in in Maryland, but then it, it wound up in St. Louis, and it became a very highly publicized case in 1949, and that is what inspired uh, William Peter Blatty to write The Exorcist in the first place. But when he was looking for material in his research about what actually happens during an exorcism, he comes across... For the physical attributes, this is the one he went to. Because how fucked up can you get? This is where it is. He comes across a forgotten 40-year-old pamphlet called Be Gone Satan. With puking Spider-Man. And the movie becomes basically uh, kind of a scene-by-scene literal recreation of the exorcism of Anna Eklund. Now, interesting. I mean, like you say, not even as bad as what we're reading. So, interestingly enough, in that case, in the Roland Doe case, which obviously also is a very well-known, highly publicized possession case, these are the two best cases known in American history, right? Roland Doe and Anna Eklund. Um, there's several documentaries about Roland Doe. I remember when the ghost shows finally got in there, like Zach Baggins, and you know they're doing the exorcism house in St. Louis and such. So um, it's really highly publicized. The assisting priest in that case, so kind of like that case is Joseph Steiger, and the last surviving witness of it was actually a Jesuit priest from Prairie du Chien named Walter Halloran. Seriously? Yes. My God. And he also went on to How be... How many ties do we have to everything that's fucked up in this he, he went on later to be a professor at Marquette. So, you know, oh, Wisconsin God. connections Man, abound. If it's screwed up, we have ties, <laughs> baby. We are involved. Now, the vomiting aspect, as, as Mickey talked about, was constant through the entire exorcism. Right. The foul stench was overwhelming, evidently. I mean, it was impossible for a human, even a large human who eats a lot, to release a as large much human, as this person did. As we've established, did. she's not. And, right. and I mean, so that mental illness does not cause no. that kind of vomiting. No, you're not vomiting uh, because chewed you macaroni and sliced tobacco leaves. That if you've you're, never uh, put in your... And, and and speaking to people about things in their lives that they've never heard of and, and voices and languages that you never learned or knew. I mean, a, t- a, a teaspoon of water or milk a day is what this woman would take. Right. And yet she knows things about people she's never met and she's speaking in languages she's never learned. Uh, Father Theo would have to change his clothes three or four times a session. The sisters were constantly... His own clothes. His own clothes, because he's spitting in his face all the time, right? Yeah. The sisters were constantly changing the mattress covers, and they were changing their own clothes, obviously. So it just took so much out of everybody to deal with this. Physically exhausting. So it took so much out of everybody. The the exorcism took 23 days total, but it was done in three different stages, because they they had to let her regain her strength. Well, her and them. Otherwise, she would die. Right? She needed to regain her strength because she physically would have nothing left in her, having vomited everything and defecated and everything. But 
they needed time to recover from what they've seen. It was physically exhausting just to be in the room. And Father Riesinger was the one trying to pull it out of her. So they were all just spent. So they did this in three sessions from August 18th to August 26th, September 13th to September 20th, and then December 15th to December 23rd. Having stayed there the whole time in the meanwhile. So she just would keep to herself in this room? They'd well, be, in the convent. She had a different room that she would right, go to. Right, but I mean, she'd be looked upon, but everybody stayed on campus the whole time. Right. Because no one ever left because they knew it wasn't done until it was done. She would foam and howl and make sounds like wild, raving animals. Cat purring. C- quote, howling took place every day, and at times it lasted for hours. At other times it sounded as though a horde of lions and hyenas were let loose. Then again, as the meowing of cats, the bellowing of cattle, and the barking of dogs. Unquote. And this little little female, even at this age, 46, I mean, I'm loud, and I'm a you know larger man than I'd like to even admit at this point, but I'm not that big of a person, and I'm capable of loud noises. We're talking about noises that no human being can make. Her face became so distorted that no one could recognize her anymore. Distorted, like stretched beyond recognition. Her, quote, her pale, death-like, and emaciated head, often assuming the size of an inverted water pitcher, became as red as glowing embers. Her eyes protruded out of her sockets. Her lips swelled up to proportions equaling the size of her hands. And her thin, emaciated body was so bloated to such enormous size that the pastor and some of the sisters drew back out of fright, thinking that the woman would be torn to pieces and burst. At times, her abdominal region and extremities became as hard as iron and stone. In such instances, the weight of her body pressed into the iron bed so that the iron rods of the bed bent the floor, unquote. So there that is again as she becomes so heavy. This little tiny woman who's emaciated, she's not eating. She becomes so heavy, she's bending the iron rods of the bed. And that harkens back to when she was thrown on the floor in the church, and the, the, the priest couldn't lift her up because she was so heavy. So we're seeing a return of that kind of situation. And then she'd become abnormally weak, as we said, so pale and hard to, even hard to touch. The room would become a pit of despair that nobody could remain in for any significant period of time. That's why they needed these breaks in between. There was so much going on, it's hard to even imagine, and we're describing it fairly eloquently. And my brain and Scott's imagination is even better than mine. It's, I am trying to picture this. I can't even imagine what they were going through. Her body became so bloated, they thought she was going to burst. Think of that scene. Her body is so bloated, they run away because they think it's going to burst. Her like a eyes are popping balloon. out of the sockets, and her hands are the size of, of a, a head, you said, right? It became the size of an inverted water pitcher, which I'm assuming is small. I don't, I don't know exactly what an inverted water pitcher looks like, but it uh, seems like her her head shrunk and her body became bigger. So, and you know, and and then there is the question of just who is possessing or what is possessing this woman, right? Through these outbursts, Riesinger learned many details and concluded she was possessed by not one, but five different demons. Her dad. Jacob, the alcoholic, her aunt Mina, the witch, both now apparently residing in hell, along with Beelzebub, Judas, and Lucifer himself, 
Beelzebub, one of seven deadly demons, princes of hell, representing gluttony and envy, capable of flight, also called Lord of the Flies. Judas Iscariot, one of twelve apostles, notorious for betraying Jesus by disclosing his whereabouts for thirty pieces of silver. Lucifer, once beautiful angel, defied God, fell from heaven's glory, sentenced to hell, becoming ruler of hell, named changed to Satan eventually. Alongside main five were many other lesser demons arriving in packs, screaming and growling atop one another until driven away. So there was a lot going on as far as the demonic presences going on in this one room. So they can hear all these voices coming from her, right? And again, she's not opening her mouth. Her coming mouth from is her, one little woman. So they hear all these weird voices, right? And some of the voices, it quote says, quote, sounded bestial and most unnatural, uttering an inexpressible grief and hatred that no human could re- reproduce. And multiple at a time. But then again, she, they heard voices which were indeed quite human. So they could tell, you know, the, the differences in the in the voices. Now, again... And multiple languages, though, that she didn't know. And they, they would have full-on conversations, which is, which is interesting. And, and Begon Satan says, says this, and they, he, it alludes to this in the beginning of it. It says, quote, if the dialogue seems odd, because there is a lot of it, this is what often happens in exorcisms, unquote. They they talk. They like to talk. They like to argue. They like to hurl insults. They like to debate the Bible. It says they have full-on conversations with these um, demons Demonic who presences. say they are certain demons. Obviously, but in they multiple lie. languages, like you say, whatever the presence is, it's multiple right. languages. It's multiple. It's much dialogue. It's in-depth, and they seem to know things that... That this poor little woman, this this carrier, right. this source, wouldn't know otherwise. Now the first the first name they got to identify itself was Beelzebub. Now this is you know he's known basically as Satan's um, right Demon. hand right hand man kind of second in command. Representing I guess. gluttony and envy, as I you said, know, and one he, of the devil, one of the seven deadly demons and princesses of hell. So Princess. Beelzebub states that he begins torturing this girl through possession when she was 14. So if you remember, you know, when this started, she was 14, just a few years after her mom died, when all this, you know, erratic behavior with her started. And he said it so was... So alcoholic, abusive dad's already in place. Then he comes along. And it was... before Aunt Mina. Under the command of Satan himself. And he also mentions that, that, age already. that she was opened up to possession by being cursed by her own father, Jacob. And later on, Aunt Mina, who was a witch. And then another, and that a voice they could tell, is one of the voices they could tell was not human, because Beelzebub was not a human. He was a fallen angel. He was never on earth. Now, another deep voice that came through, a very deep, growly voice that they could tell was human, because it sounded, I don't know how they could tell, I just assume that it sounds more of a tonanically human voice. Um, as Mickey said, identified himself as Judas Iscariot, and he states that his job was to try to drive Emma to suicide. Quote, she must get the rope, she must go to hell, unquote. Now, Judas himself died by suicide in the Bible, because he was so distraught at the fact that he did, you know, turn turn Jesus into the Romans, which obviously led to his execution, he hung himself by a tree. Now, interestingly enough, there's also, there's an ancient text, and I don't think this is in the Bible. It might, I'm not a biblical scholar, obviously. It might be in the Bible, but I think it's not. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a more obscure ancient text, 
that before Judas does kill himself, he, he kind of catches the wrath of God for what he did. And it says that his body bloated up so high he couldn't walk down a street for some time. So some correlation there between what happened with Emma, right? Body bloating up to the, to the point where they thought it was going to burst. Judas trying to drive her to commit suicide. Uh, when he was alive on earth, apparently his body bloated up so high that he couldn't even walk down a street. And then another, as Mickey said, voice comes through, and this voice they could tell also was human, and this person identifies himself as Jacob. And I want to read this from Begone, dead. Begone Satan, because this really encompasses who this, this That's guy... That's a bib- biblical name, this so guy we need was. to make sure we understand this is her dad. Yep, abusive alcoholic. To refer to as Jacob. You know, there's no right. reason that that... We don't know if that's an alias either, you know. Right, so, but we're not talking about biblical Jacob. No, no, this is Jacob, her father. It says, quote, Later developments disclose the fact that he had led a frightfully coarse and brutal life, a passionately unchaste and debased life. He now admitted that he had repeatedly tried to force his own daughter to commit incest with him, but she had firmly resisted. Therefore, and now he's pissed. Therefore, he had cursed her and wished her inhumanely that the devils would enter into her and entice her to commit every possible sin against chastity, thereby ruining her body, ruining her soul, and ruining her. He also admitted that he did not die suddenly, but that he was permitted to receive the sacrament of extreme unction, which is basically getting your last rites and having your soul saved. But this was of no avail to him because he scoffed at and ridiculed the priest administering the sacrament. Later in the exorcism, he made the following explanation. Whatever sins he had committed in his life might still be forgiven him before death so that he could have been saved. But the crime of giving his own child to the devils was the thing that finally determined his eternal damnation. Even in hell, he was still scheming how to torture and molest his child Lucifer gladly permitted him to do this. He hated his daughter so much for not wanting to have sex with him that even after death, he was going to haunt her from the deep levels of hell. And since he was his own daughter... This is a demon. And since he was in his own daughter, he was not, despite all the solemn prayers of the church, in the least disposed to give her up or leave her. What happened to that guy to cause him to be that way in life? much less continue that way after death. There And there, there is a thought. A lot of people don't say that they don't know what happened to him, and he goes on and says that he did not die suddenly. There is a thought that he actually moved to Arizona and died of cancer. Well, something happened to him long before that to want oh, to sure, do that yeah. to his own offspring. The same kind of things he's trying to do to his daughter are probably much worse happening to and, him at a young age. Oh, And in the book, it's funny you say that, in the book, The Devil Rocked Her Cradle, it, it goes into Jacob's backstory, where he was basically possessed as a teenager, so he was possessed his whole life, right? And then and and sought them most of the time when someone becomes possessed, they've had a bad experience before. Then that's why mental illness often becomes a culprit, or people jump to that conclusion, especially nowadays. Something bad happened to them, and whether these supernatural forces come into play or not. Something bad happened to them, and then who knows what happens after that. Something caused him to be this evil. And then eventually a high-pitched voice that they had heard faintly until now comes through, and this person obviously identifies herself as Mina. 
And Mina admits that she's damned to hell because of the prolonged affair with her sister's husband and also for, quote, unrepentant acts of child murder. Unquote. And that she's a witch, yeah. So she admits herself that she killed four of her own children. This cannot be verified because we don't know who Mina is. But it happened during this that she admits it, right? Yes, she admits it during the exorcism, but this is something that we can't, it can't go back and be confirmed. No, we weren't right? there. Now, Mina was especially hateful in the rhetoric during the exorcism, right? And it was when Mina was coming through that Emma would spit, vomit constantly in the faces of Father Theo and Joseph Steiger. And then, of course, Satan himself would would come out and he would spill secrets of the sisters, right? So here is the knowing things you should not or could not have any way of knowing, right? And they're spilling all kinds of embarrassing secrets about the sisters, things they did when they were little that nobody knew about. Maybe some of them aren't as pure as what they should be when you're a Franciscan sister. So they're, they're becoming embarrassed. They don't want to be part of this anymore because they don't know <laughs> what is going to be said about them next. He knew when, when Joseph Steiger had small religious relics in his pocket, even though Father Theophilus told Joseph not to do that, um, Emma would know when he did it. Anything in their pocket, whether they presented it to her or not, if just it was in the presence of her, she knew because they knew. And Satan would also say, and this goes back to what the bishop warned Joseph about, he seemed to focus his wrath on Joseph Steiger, saying that this is all his fault. If you haven't given permission to this guy, if you would not have given permission for Father Theo to come here and do this exorcism, none of this would have happened, right? So Steiger is who Satan holds responsible for the exorcism that they're all going through right now for the next four months. So Steiger seems to get Satan's wrath, and he says that he will suffer, and he warned him that not only will he get revenge on him, he tells him when it's going to happen. He says, I'm going to get revenge on you at the end of this week. On Friday. So on August 26, 1928, the first attempt finally concluded, lasting eight days. The group feared for her life as she became abnormally weak and pale. The break deemed necessary for everyone, as we mentioned. Only after the exorcism ceased did Emma once again open her eyes and return to normal walking state. With no knowledge of any of the events, she did claim visions of horrible battles between spirits, but that's all she knew. So... Just to get the message across, the first of these three exorcisms in 1928 was... They, they were introduced to the, these five entities. The second one is where they actually got to know them. That's the point that needs to be made. The first time they were just introduced. The second session from September 13th, 1928 until September 20th, they actually got to know these. Around this time, the situation began wearing on Father Steger. He doubted his involvement and felt sense of apprehension, which he proved to be founded. Right. He had difficulty sleeping at night as rats scratched in his walls. The room vibrated and rumbled and constant unearthly sounds echoed every night. His house had been rodent-free for 14 years that he lived there, and yet the problem ceased only when he prayed and equipped himself with his religious symbols. Unfortunately, prolonged disturbances took toll on his well-being. Taunted more than anyone else, as Scott alluded to, supposedly even by Lucifer himself in an attempt to turn himself against Father Riesinger, he spoke out about it all to, to his lifelong friend, whose presence now brought feeling of annoyance to him. He was starting to actually feeling resentment. As usual, Riesinger took it all in stride, assuring him it would all work out as it was the work of the devil trying to come between them. 
Reluctantly, Steger continued on. Not long after, Lucifer again threatened, this time about how Steger would regret involvement once Paris turned against him. Quote, I'll incite the whole parish against you. I will illuminate you in such a way you will no longer be able to defend yourself. Then you will have to pack up and leave in shame and regret. I cannot harm God directly, but I can touch you and his church. Just wait until the end of the week when Friday comes then. Unquote. That Friday, after he's warned by this voice that says it's Satan himself, right? Joseph Steiger was leaving the home of a dying woman he had just gone to. Uh, basically give her her last rites. He got a call from somebody saying that, you know, this woman is dying. Could you come and give her her last rites before it's too late? So he does. He gets in his car and he drives over to her house. He gives her her last rites and he's about to drive back to the convent. Quote, suddenly as he was driving along, a dark black cloud appeared before him. It came just as he was about to pass a bridge over a deep ravine. Great God, it seemed as if his eyes were blindfolded. The next moment, there was a crash, a smash-up which dumbfounded him. He found himself in a mess of ruins. The auto had crashed into the railing of the bridge with an indescribable force, although he had jerked the car into low gear. The auto, now a complete wreck, was hanging on the iron trellis, threatening any moment to drop into the deep abyss below." So Steiger crashes his car on the Friday that Satan said he was going to get his revenge on him. So a local farmer who's in the area sees what happens. He runs over to the car and he helps Steiger out of the car. And the car was totaled, right? The car is a mess. It's done. So he takes, the farmer takes Steiger to the hospital. And Steiger checks out fine. He's not hurt at all. Not one mark. But he was given a pretty big freaking scare, right? So he goes back to the convent and he goes in the room and Emma... Or the voice inside Emma immediately begins laughing and asks about his car that Satan himself said he, quote, smashed to smithereens, unquote. Obviously alluding to the fact that that car crash is what Satan warned him what would happen. That was Satan getting his revenge on him. Quote, be ready for a whole lot more fun. So as Mickey said, Steiger is getting done with this, right? He's wearing down. He's starting to resent Riesinger himself. He's starting. His own friend. He's wanting to quit. Yeah, cause he, he's, and he's being tormented, right? And not only what's going on and not only things that they're seeing with this exorcism during the day, but it's the stuff at night too. Like He's Mickey taking said. the brunt of it other than Emma herself. He's taking the brunt of it, so he's wanting to be done. And he's, if you remember, he didn't really want to do this to begin with. He didn't want to do it, and one of the reasons he didn't want to do it is because he didn't want the community to find out. He didn't want it, you know, anything unleashed in the community. But he didn't even think about the personal effects it would have. And the community knows what's going on by now because the community heard the, the screams and the, the squealing and the wailing coming from the room. You know, As we talk, sometimes it would go on for hours, it said, loud squealing that sounded like a pack of lions. People heard this. And they demanded to know what the heck was going on. So they had to fess up. And not only did they fess up, they would ask the parishioners to pray for this woman, to kind of use that power of prayer as well to help her. So it gets to the point where Steiger, this is now the third session. They've been doing this for four months. He is done. 
He can't sleep at night. Like Mickey said, there's hell rats, they call them, in his walls. His doorknobs are rattling all night long. He gets zero sleep. He is tormented almost as much as Emma herself. And this is what they say they believe is Satan driving a wedge, a wedge through Steiger and Theophilus. So, and it gets, Using him as an example, basically. Basically gets to the point where Father Theo has to beg Steiger not to throw him out. You know, this, this, we're, we're not done yet. We need to continue helping this woman. Now, Even though he's seen the effects she's going through and knows that she needs to have this released, he is feeling the, the horrible implications going on besides that he's like, no, do it somewhere else. Now, Emma does herself lose, you know, when these are going on, she's losing consciousness every day. Imagine the toll. You know, that this is taken on Joseph Steiger and Theophilus Riesinger and obviously the sisters. Imagine the toll it's taking on her. Right? The sessions would last from early morning to night. She had to be carried to the room because she couldn't walk. Again, she had her own room when the sessions were over with that she could sleep in a bed and when in between sessions she could have her own space. She couldn't even walk. They had to carry her from her room to the exorcism room. She wasn't even a vessel at this point. She was like a leaf left over. She ate no solid foods through the entire four months. Zero. As we said, milk and... They had to inject her. Yeah, right. They had to inject her with liquid nourishment. She basically basically had a a feeding tube. And there was a time where she had taken a, quote, death-like color and Steiger thought she was dead. So there was actually a time during this exorcism that Joseph Steiger thought that Emma had died. He thought it was over because it was over. So Steiger is participating less and less, mainly because he just couldn't take it anymore. He did have a parish to run. He was still the the pastor there, right? He had still had to conduct mass. Um, The sisters were worn out, horrified from, you know, what they were seeing every day. Everybody's just physically drained. And then eventually Father Theophilus noticed that the demons, the voices who identify themselves as these demons, were not quite as strong. On December 15, 1928, the group began what would be the fourth and final overall third attempt of this session's exorcisms. With many of the lesser demons driven away and Mina basically handled in the first two attempts, the final battle began between exorcist Riesinger and four main demons. The stench, the growls, and the insults continued as expected. But sensing victory, Riesinger continued process nonstop for three days and nights. No sleep, just continuing the battle. From morning till night, the demonic battles continued. Reaching the breaking point and feeling unable to be present for much of the final attempt, Steger found other work throughout the parish. Staying away for long periods, only assisting when up to it or asked in extreme situations. Others became concerned that Riesinger would collapse saying he resembled a walking corpse having spent every bit of energy. On December 22, 1928, seven days later, a significant breakthrough occurred as Emma levitated from the bed with only her heels barely touching the sheets. Completely exhausted, Riesinger commanded all her demons to hell. Emma began softly muttering, quote, Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mina, hell. Hell, hell, unquote. Later, Riesinger admitted seeing a vision of a room circled in flame with Lucifer and Beelzebub standing in the corner, seething in rage from inability to assault him. Described Lucifer as a, 
quote, tall, with matted black fur on his lower hooved body, unquote, a fiery being with a crown on his head and a fiery sword in his hand. At the end of the vision, the room shook and rumbled with vast energy, then fell silent. Emma said to have collapsed back onto the bed, eyes opened with a big smile, saying simply, quote, From what a terrible burden have I been freed at last. My Jesus mercy, praise be Jesus Christ, unquote. It was apparently the first time in 12 years she was able to say the name Jesus Christ. All demons had departed with only a foul stench remaining, and the exorcisms finally ended. Now, Theophilus Riesinger basically becomes a bit of a celebrity after this, right? Time Magazine publishes a feature on him in uh, the magazine that we had talked about in the opening. But he just goes back to his normal activities at St. Joe's in Appleton. Again, he's a a friar at St. Joseph's Church in Appleton, and he's, you know, teaching religion classes and whatnot. After this, his his kind of his exorcism career, uh, it didn't end, but he he only did a couple more after this. By by the time of this Time Magazine interview in 1936, he was done with it. By then, he hadn't done any in a while. Now, discrepancies abound of what became of Emma after this. Now, most accounts say that she went on to live a fairly quiet life, uh, having only minor occurrences of possession that she could pretty much manage herself, dying supposedly in 1941 at the age of 59. Now, there's other accounts, depending on what Emma Schmidt you believe this is, that say she lived into the 1960s, well into her 80s, and was actually buried next to her father. It's believed she actually died on July 23rd, 1941. But in the Buncey account, it says that Anna's possession returned in 1929, so literally just months after this. And Father Theophilus was still doing regular exorcisms on her when Begone Satan came out in 1935. And in the interview in 1936, in an interview with the Milwaukee Journal, I believe, Theo, Father Theophilus, says about the exorcism of Emma Schmidt. He says, quote, It is a mystery that is still going on. This case will continue until Christ says it is enough. Unquote. So he seems to confirm that. He seems to be saying it's not over. So the notion that she went on and lived a quiet life, is that true? We don't know what to believe. But again, the Buncey account seems to be confirmed here uh, by Father Theophilus. But the Buncey account suggests that they may have even met in New York. And the Buncey account is a bit of a mystery because, it, again, they were never published. His, his accounts were never published. But there are a few versions that survive, and they're all individually typed on a typewriter. And they're not copied, right? They are individually typed because some of the, the, the paging, the numbering doesn't add up as the others do. So they're all individually typed. And those are the only accounts that survive. And we know they knew each other. We know Buncey and Riesinger knew each other. We know Riesinger stayed with him in New York for several weeks in 1932 and 1933. And this is written in 1934. Buncey dies in 1935. So there's just too many questions about where Buncey got his information. Again, General consensus is that Buncey said he got his information from Riesinger himself and from his notes. Most people today, for some reason, don't believe that. Because, again, we don't have access to Riesinger's notes. They're in the Vatican. When did they go to the Vatican? How do we know that Riesinger himself, who, again, we know they knew each other, didn't tell him this stuff? 
So we're just, we're too unsure of what happened to Emma Schmidt after this. And that is why we, the discrepancies, and we don't exactly know who Anna Eklund or Emma Schmidt was. A lot of speculation out there, but we can't nail it down. As far as how genuine the exorcisms, the, these three sessions themselves were, though, according to, as Scott mentioned, Carl Vogel's Be Gone Satan, the final word in the pamphlet by Teresa Wiegerer, a housekeeper of Father Steger, quote, I was a witness to almost the whole period of the exorcism of the Earling possession case, and I can truthfully say that the facts mentioned in Be Gone Satan are correct. Some of the scenes were even more frightful than described in the booklet. There is not the slightest doubt in my mind that the devils were present, and I will never forget the horrible scenes, vile, filthy, and dirty, as long as I live, unquote. The original intentions to create the informational pamphlet to be passed out to Samaritans of the Catholic Church. That's why this pamphlet was originally created, not for publication, not for hype, but just to spread the word that this can happen to people. Informing and educating on the subject of demonic possession and the practice of exorcisms. Now, she was Joseph Steiger's housekeeper. That the quote that you read, Teresa Weger, who said that she knows that this is that this happened because she witnessed it. She was Joseph Steiger's housekeeper. Yes, she was also Joseph Steiger's sister, real blood sister, and she was also a sister a at sister, the convent. A nun and a sister. Yeah. Right. So she witnessed this. She as well says in Begone Satan that she saw this happen. Now, Joseph Steiger never really recovered from this. He never really recovered from what happened. He continued to be a pastor at the church in Erling, Iowa, but he was haunted by what happened really for the rest of his life. And he was interviewed by Carl Vogel in 1931. Carl Vogel obviously wrote Begun Satan, but apparently he did so under the notion that it would not be published. And it was. So he was not only haunted by what happened, he was kind of haunted by the fact that the reason it got out to the masses was because of him as well. And he later said, quote, had I known that Father Vogel would publish the story, I would have refused to give him a detailed account of it. While the pamphlet is not chronological, it is, nevertheless, all correct. The facts given are true, and I can vouch for them, and I do not fear the searchlight if turned on the case, unquote. So he's saying this happened, and if you want to do whatever research you want to debunk it, go ahead. It ain't going to happen. Now, in 1938, Father Steiger was attending a luncheon with 30 other priests from the Des Moines Diocese, and he suddenly had a stroke and died at 4 o'clock that afternoon. No warning. He was 56 years old. Now, Father Theophilus Riesinger, however, continued his work at St. Joe's, as I said, in Appleton for the rest of his life. He continued his missionary work as well across the country, and he returned numerous times to Erling for missionary work, as did Emma, at least on one occasion. She returned to Erling for a novena, which is a nine-day prayer, thanking God for getting her through this. And Father Riesinger's work, though generally well-liked, his work was not without criticism. Some were not happy about the amount of attention he brought to the unfashionable elements of the Catholic Church with these exorcisms. So in November of 1941, just a few months after who most believe was the real Emma Schmidt passed away, Father Theophilus, while assisting with Mass at St. Mary's Church in Menasha, collapsed on the altar while giving communion. November 9th, 1941. He was rushed to St. Elizabeth Hospital in Appleton, 
where he died later that morning. He was 73 years old, and he's buried at the Capuchin Friar section of St. Joe's Cemetery in Appleton. And I was just there. I visited that grave while we were doing the research. And he's there buried just like all the other priests from St. Joe's. A little headstone that says his name and uh, the date of his life, right? There, there's no monument to him. There's no specific statue to him. He didn't get any fortune out of what this was, right? He was a Capuchin priest. They worked for food. Even though he was referred to as, quote, potent and mystic exorcist of demons, unquote. That, I mean, that's that became his legacy, and yet there's no shrine. There's no big legacy. Yeah. There's He's there with the other Capuchin friars. Just another stone. Just another, just another gravestone in the cemetery. Now, yeah, this, this... I mean, he'll live on as the exorcist to anyone who remembers all this stuff, but... Yeah, well, that's the thing. Is, but he didn't get reward. He didn't get fortune. No. He didn't get... That's the thing. This, this is... This was a, a bit of a revelation to me doing this case. Now, St. Joseph's, obviously, right, in downtown Appleton. I was baptized there. I went to CCD classes there growing my up. My dad I, went to school there. I had my first communion there. My parents were married there. My sister was married there. I remember growing up, my grandfather, my mom's dad, got a huge award. Like it was a, it's a, like a four-foot-tall trophy. I remember it because I was such a kid and it had a sculpture of my grandfather on it. I think we still have it. I think it's at my parents' house, actually. And it was for his um, 30 years, I think, of volunteer services at St. Joe's Parish. And my grandfather volunteered there for decades. So, you know, St. Joe's is very prominent in my family's history. I had all my aunts and uncles were married there. I had zero clue about Theophilus Riesinger mm-hmm. until we did this research. None. That old timer, that reminiscent. He spent about, a lot of time there. Yeah, I mean, it was long before because we, we're so young. It was long before our existence. He was but, there for thirty years, right? That old timer that talked about in the post credit about being in his third grade religion classes in the nineteen thirties. I was sitting in those same classrooms in the nineteen eighties. The Exorcist. <laughs> no idea that you know this was the inspiration for the most famous horror movie in the history of cinema. Like money grabbing, conducted even. work. Right there right. for thirty years, right, and just a decent, humble man who just wanted to make do right by people because he became the exorcist throughout the country, as we've mentioned multiple times. He didn't make money doing this. He even the fame he wasn't looking for. He was just trying to help people who were possessed. Nobody made money from this. Steiger obviously no. was wrecked oh, by it. Oh God, he made the opposite of money right. from this. We don't even know who Emma was. So what did she get from it? Right, so. You know, the, basically the question becomes, what do you believe? Right. right. Obviously, it's it's not lost on us that this stuff is hard to believe, right? Was this truly a case of demonic possession or serious mental illness? Possibly schizophrenia, psychosis, or even dis- disassociative personality disorder. If certain elements are actually true, including levitation, crawling on the walls, voice changing, other spoken languages she couldn't have possibly known, constant vomiting... It's tough to categorize that as mental illness. No. Was it exaggerated so they could get hyped? That doesn't sound like it. You know, there, there's there's zero doubt that this happened, obviously. We have real-time newspaper reports in Iowa talking about it while it's going on. There is zero doubt that it happened. Now, did all this happen? Did, you know, Theophilus Riesinger talk to Satan and Beelzebub and Judas? Why? 
making why, a deal with him? Why would why would Beelzebub and and Satan torment this poor, literally poor girl from nowhere, Wisconsin? What's the purpose of it? Especially with the poor upbringing she had, she was tormented from but Judas from the day her mom died, or if not earlier. Why is Judas talking through this girl? Right now, these are all legit questions, obviously. But if you don't believe demons are among us. Look around you. Look at what we do to each other every day. Spend a day on X or Twitter. Scroll through it. The Bible says the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. I think that history proves that whether you're religious or not, we should probably believe that. Amen, brother.